Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is June the 1st, 2017. It is a Thursday, and this is episode 2015-2015 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, and that's me in here in the, the driver's seat, so to speak, handling your calls. I got a bunch of calls today. I kept my word to you. Uh, those of you that called the Think Line, I went in order from the from the, the the oldest to the newest for people that started calling as of Friday last week. And I think I pretty much got everybody on here. I think I knew a couple calls that were duplicates of people recalling their calls in and stuff like that. But I don't think I, I, I bounced anybody. I think I got all the calls that made it through and were legible anyway. Here's what we got today. Setting up a profit share for farming on another person's land. What is meant by the concept of inflating away the debt? And there's a good lesson in cryptocurrency in that, and that's one reason I'm excited about doing it for you. Um, then a question basically that comes down to, should you self-dehydrate your own vegetables, or does it make more sense to buy dehydrated foods? Well, that's a big old it depends, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Economical methods to seal a small pond. Sometimes the easiest and the simplest is also the most economical long-term. Uh, how the justice system is like used car sales from a guy that seems to know what he's talking about. And my rebuttal to that that says, and it can still be freaking racist than it was in regards to the case he's talking about. And I'll point something out in the bullet points of the history segment that kind of speaks to that. Um, trapping problem raccoons. I'm going to tell you how to do that safely and not hurt your puppies and your kitties. Uh, an opportunity to design a public food forest has come up for somebody out there that wants to do it. And considerations for picking a property with water on it. We'll be talking about all of that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5-10% to 10 of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 2015. We have Obamacare, History in the Making, by Alex Shrugged. And we have Rubella is Gone from America, from Southpaw Ben. Uh, notable deaths this year, Leonard Nimoy, age 83, COPD lung disease, Mr. Spock on Star Trek and more. Before his death, he posted to Twitter, A life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had but not preserved except in memory. Love that quote. I love that quote in so many different ways. Yogi Berra died at age 90, natural causes, baseball catcher, outfielder, and manager. He said, always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't go to yours. Uh, yeah, he had a, a lot of quirky things. I think my favorite saying by Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. 
B.B. King, age 89, of a stroke, blues singer, electric guitarist, and brass band accompanied his funeral procession playing when the Saints go marching in. And Yvonne Craig, age 78, died of breast cancer, the original Batgirl on TV's Batman. She was one of the first woman superheroes. Do you know who else she was? I'm going to express my extreme nerdiness here, okay, to even know this. Yvonne Craig, you know the green chick that everybody talks about on Star, Star Trek with Kirk, the green Orion slave girl? That was Yvonne Craig. It's weird that that's in my head, but I know that. Uh, this year in film, Star Wars The Force Awakens Episode 7 grosses over $2 billion. Jurassic World, like Jurassic Park, only the humans are dumber, says Alex Schrock. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> and this year in film also, The Martian, Minions, and Inside Out. Alex loved them all. I've seen none of them. This year in TV, I don't know any of these things except the one, the first one. The host of the Miss Universe contest, I believe that was Steve Harvey, announces Miss Columbia is the winner, but the winner is really Miss Philippines. After crowning the wrong woman, they come back after commercial break and fix it. What a nightmare. It also was a far bigger news story than it needed to be, in my opinion, but that's just me. But that's why I know about it. Here's the three uh, things that happened. Trevor Noah takes over as the host of The Daily Show. I've never seen The Daily Show. Don't plan to. Don't really know what he's doing with it or care. Mr. Robot uh, says hackers are trying to destroy a mega corporation. Alex says he's not seen enough of the new show to comment. I didn't even know it existed. And The Expanse, based on the novel of the same name. I started reading the novel. It's weird the TV show looks well-produced, says Alex Rugg. Didn't know it existed, so I can't comment on those. This year in music, Uptown Funk by Mark Ron Ronson and Bruno Mars. Hello, It's Me by Adele. Take Your Time from Sam Hunt and Save It for a Rainy Day from Kenny Chesney. Because the sun's too bright, the sky's too blue. Beer's too cold to be thinking about you. Going to take this heartbreak and tuck it away and save it for a rainy day. Uh, some additional news this year. Al-Qaeda assassins murdered 12 in a shootout at the offices of the satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo. Uh, NSA can now hide spy software in your hard drive straight from the factory. Bo Bergdahl is charged with desertion and misbehavior before the enemy. Police officer Michael Slager shoots Walter Scott for a bad brake light. Uh, here's some commentary. The officer was filmed doing it. Scott was unarmed and running away. Slager is charged with murder. Running away is not a capital crime. I saw the murder. It was the video was cold-blooded murder, says Alex Rook. I agree, and apparently Michael Slager eventually agreed when presented with enough evidence because he pled guilty this year. Two years later, he pled guilty last month, the beginning of May. It's been three weeks. He still hasn't been sentenced. Okay, so when you hear the call from the caller that says he doesn't think any racism was involved with the guy that's in jail for 10 years over a TV, just keep that in mind. I'm just, he pled guilty. He still hasn't been sentenced. They're trying to figure out what to do with a guy that shot a man in the back, cold-blooded freaking murder, and here's my bet to you. I bet you, I bet you that son of a bitch, no matter what he's sentenced to, I bet you the son of a bitch doesn't spend 10 years in jail, and I bet you the guy that stole the TV does. Don't tell me the justice system is freaking blind. And I'll let go, because we got a good show today, and I'll only be up like this all the time. In fact, I'm not going to even read any more in other news. I'm going to go back to you and read Rebella is Gone in America, because that won't get my blood pressure up for nothing. Contributed by Southpaw Ben. The World Health, Health Organization announces that Rubella, the R in the MMR vaccine, has been eradicated from the Americas, as there have been no cases traceable to other countries in the last five years. 
The last epidemic cases took place in Argentina and Brazil in 2009. The main threat of rubella is to pregnant women in the first trimester. It can cause congenital rubella syndrome in children, which can, combine, can cause blindness, deafness, autism, and heart defects. On a similar note, the U.S. has been measles-free for 15 years until there was an outbreak of 150 people that spread from Disneyland in California. Doctors blame patients who didn't trust the MMR vaccine for this outbreak. Okay, or didn't take the MMR, tr trust the MMR. So actually, I think he means didn't have the MMR because he didn't have to trust it if he still could have got it without trusting it. Anyway, my take on self, take myself on Ben. If vaccines work the way I've always heard and been taught, then the only people affected by the lack of vaccination should be those who weren't vaccinated, as well as anyone who has should have gotten a booster or any politician who's watched this occurred under. Also, given rubella has been eradicated in the U.S., you think they could remove it from the MMR vaccine? Don't expect that anytime soon. Here's, here's the reality here. If the main threat of rubella is for pregnant women, then women could choose to get it when they reach childbearing years and plan on having children. And as far as herd immunity, don't, don't, don't you freaking comment. I don't want to hear this bullshit about herd immunity anymore. Herd immunity requires over 90% of a population to be vaccinated. You say, well, Jack, they are. No, they're not. Quit believing bullshit just because people keep telling you bullshit. You tell me what percentage of adult Americans you think get boosters for all this shit. And the answer is less than 10%. And we know the vaccines don't last into your 20s, because that's why you're supposed to get a booster. And most adult Americans don't. Herd immunity is freaking bullshit. There are side effects and risks to vaccines, and you should consider them all, and you should read the freaking inserts published by the manufacturers of the vaccines before you decide to give your freaking children 13 vaccinations on one freaking day. And if you don't at this point, after hearing this this many times, you are risking your child's health for no damn good reason. They can have every vaccine. They don't have to have that shit cocktailed into them when they're babies. And we shouldn't be doing it. And we are a sick freaking society that does this to our children in the name of health. We are giving children vaccinations for disease they cannot possibly, cannot possibly get as babies while they're babies. Our, 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 they want to start now giving Gardasil vaccines to children when they're freaking babies. An ineffective vaccine not tested for long time. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. You people that just believe this shit, go ahead and keep believing it and keep shoving the shit in your kids. And keep believing that there's no link to all the screwed up shit going on with our children today. Just go ahead. I'm going to let it go. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. 
And I'm, I'm sorry I was so animated there in the intro segment, or actually the history segment, guys, for those of you that heard it. Um, I, I am just, I, I'm fed up with conformity. I'm fed up with the complete conformity and just, well, they say it's safe. Well, of course they do. Of course they do. Please research the issue of vaccines. If you're listening to the commercial-free version of the show, please research it for yourself. Get the facts on both sides and make an informed decision. Please consider simply stretching out the vaccinations and not doing them all at the same time. So if there's an adverse reaction to one, you can identify which vaccination it was. Because if you give your kid 10 or 12 vaccines in one day and they have an adverse reaction, you don't know what did it. or You don't know if they compounded on top of each other. This is sane and rational And you know what? We didn't have people falling over and dying in the 1980s when the vaccine schedule was much more um, sane, in my view. Just my thoughts. Anyway, let's get into the first call. Before we do that, I've got, a, I guess you call them announcements or just some commentary on something. I gave, I did something I don't do a lot of. I don't do a lot of interviews on other people's shows, and I'm, I'm trying to do more of that. Uh, with time constraints and all, it is difficult, but... Uh, Vin Armani actually reached out to him and said, dude, we need to do another interview because I really like working with you. I like what you're doing. And uh, so I've heard some things coming up in the liberty movement lately that I kind of want to discuss and make more clear to people. And I think you have a good outlet for that. So I did a great interview with Vin Armani. Some of you guys tuned into the live stream on it. It was Monday of this week when I was technically off. So when I was off, I was working. Um, but it went really well except for the fact that like right in the middle of it, uh, all of a sudden, boop, 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 it just all froze up on Vin's end and the live stream cut out. And uh, they did a pretty good job of splicing it back together. It's pretty seamless. Unless you knew where to look, you probably wouldn't even know that it happened. Um, they did take a couple lines out that I was saying right at the end just to let it blend a little better. Didn't really hurt nothing. I have a link today in the show notes to the interview, and it's not the full episode of the show. It's Activist Post uh, pulled out just my interview and published that. So that's on YouTube. You can check that out. And I honestly feel like you should subscribe to Vin's show. I think if there's another person in podcasting that is teaching the same type of philosophy of liberty and freedom from a little bit different of an angle, it's Vin Armani. And, and you guys know I've been working with him quite a bit this year. I don't just take people on and, and work with them and make them kind of partners in, in the world really easily. Um, there has to be a certain amount of affinity there and trust. And I, I really think Vin has his heart in the right place, and he's busting his ass trying to make something of what he's doing. So check that interview out, and if you like it, consider subscribing. And I also wanted to, to, to let you guys know that maybe you didn't read the blog. Uh, Vin has a newsletter called Counter Markets, and uh, Counter Markets is all about the Agora. It's all about the opportunities out there for you as an entrepreneur in everything from the above board, but in the edge stuff like, you know, cryptocurrencies and multi-tenant housing and all kinds of stuff like that to even like, well, here's the gray area. Here's that Agora market. Here's that gray market. Uh, it's pretty badass. It's 150 bucks a year. It also comes with a uh, ability to become part of a private Facebook group. Uh, like kind of a mastermind group that's just kind of getting rolling now because, you know, not everybody that subscribes joins the group, which I, you would think they would. Um, but I'm a member of that group, and it's a you know, confidential group by invite only. Uh, it's 150 bucks a year. But if you're an MSB member, you have 50 bucks off. So it pays for your membership right there. Uh, so you might want to check out Counter Markets. And what I suggest you do is don't even worry about the MSB discount. Don't worry about buying it. Go to countermarkets.com. And, and, and just, you know, enter your email and your name. And then they'll give you the, they'll give you the most current edition for free. And you can read it and decide if you want it. And then they'll send you a, a follow up email like, Hey, you want to buy it now? If you're going to buy it, 
use your MSB discount. If you don't have MSB and you're going to buy it, go get MSB because you're going to be in net even at that point and have all the other discounts in the MSB. So I want to talk with you about that. And then I, I, I was approached by another guy. I never heard of him, but apparently he's a pretty big-time podcaster. got like 40,000, 50,000 downloads a day. So, you know, he's where we were uh, five years ago-ish, you know. Uh, his name's Jason Stapleton. He's also a big-time Forex trader and uh, big into the Liberty Movement. And a little more, I guess, toward the Glenn Beck side of things than I am, I guess. But still, I think he's a voluntarist in denial. And I think the, the, the funnest part of this interview is we're talking about politics toward the end. We did the whole first part on like self-sufficient, self-reliance, stuff like that. And he brings politics in, and I say, you know, here's what I'm at, here's my stance on these things. And he, he eventually says, well, I'm not a volunteer. He didn't even say voluntarist. He said it wrong. Volunteerist, I think, right? Like you, before you deny something, you might want to know how to say it. And don't get me wrong, I like this guy. He's doing important work. He, he's a good guy. But uh, he says he's not a volunteerist, and he starts explaining his, his rationale for it. And uh, basically, I call him out and say, yeah, you are. You just can't figure out how to do it. And you'll hear him attempt to refute it, but fail miserably. And you'll just hear me let it go. Just let it go, because I've made my point, and it's fun. And I wonder, how, he's on vacation this week, so he did a bunch of pre-recorded shows uh, a week ago, so that he had shows through the week. Somebody, you know, you know, might do that too, on occasion. And uh, before I discovered the magic of rewind, right? Um, so he did these shows with me and other guests throughout this week that were pre-recorded. And uh, it, it's just, it, it's a fun interview. I think you'll enjoy it. And I, I really like what Jason's doing. You should check him out, too. Uh, all right. With that, let's go ahead and get in uh, to our first call of the day. The call of the day today is setting up, or for, this one's on setting up a profit share for farming. I use that term loosely on another person's land because it really applies to a uh, market garden type situation. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from uh, from this this, this fellow. Hi, Jack. Mike in Southern Indiana calling. I've got a question about uh, work shares and profit sharing for a small tenant farmer. I have a work share with a landowner that involves eight hours of work a week in exchange for room and board, and we've started a market garden, and we were trying to come up with a reasonable value-for-value uh, value exchange on how to split up profits or how to compensate the landowner in a reasonable way, and he had requested 50% of all profits, which to me sounded a bit extreme. Um, I wanted to get your input on the matter and sort of your thoughts on these kind of trades in general. Um, I'm a young man getting my, getting my foot in the door, and uh, curious what you think a fair trade for somebody with a couple years of farming experience Uh, farming a new plot, it's about 40 by 70, um, so nothing major, but just curious what your thoughts are um, and whether or not profit sharing is even a good idea to begin with. Thanks a lot. Bye. Yeah, um, I'm going to say hell no, and I'm going to add something. Uh, I didn't play the second call, but the, the, this gentleman called back and said that uh, the guy did put a very expensive $10,000 fence around the garden area, but it was done for aesthetic reasons by his choice. So I'm going to take that little piece of information and put it into the I don't give a damn category. I don't care. I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, because if you're worried about deer or something like that, a couple pieces of rebar and one little fence charger and a couple lines of wire could have taken care of that. So I don't care. That doesn't matter. So here's the reality. Um, 
the way you describe the property, it's not very big. It's about you know the size of a lot of spin farmers farm in, in somebody's backyard. It's a market garden. It's not a farm. And, and, and you can probably obtain access to a piece of land that big for a couple hundred dollars a year. I mean, seriously, or some much smaller concession. So my, my initial response is bullshit, right? And, and here's what I think. I think the gentleman asking you for this has no idea what the workload is and thinks it's personally reasonable. He's not trying to rip you off. He just doesn't know shit from Shadola about this problem. So this is how I would approach it. Oh, okay, well then let's talk about what profit is. So... There is the cost of plants, and there's the cost of any inputs, organic fertilizer amendments, and soils. And I'm sure he'll say, well, yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's your cost. No, no, no. Uh, there's my labor. My labor has a cost. My labor's not free. Well, you don't work for free, do you? There's a, there's a cost to my labor. So if we want to do this on a cost basis where we determine cost... And you might want to do this very diplomatically, but this is how I would explain it, maybe a little more diplomatically, because I want to be abundantly clear here and, and blunt. Um, then, then we have to look at the, the, my actual costs. So I'm going to value my labor uh, like migrant labor, like part-time farm labor. At a $10 an hour, that's about the average migrant laborer that does farm work. It's about what they make. It's about $10 an hour. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to value my labor at $10 an hour. And I'm going to keep tra track of the time I spend gardening, including planting, harvesting, maintenance, etc. I'm also going to keep track of any costs associated with marketing and sales, any additional labor that I need to hire. Uh, I'm going to, of course, bill for, for my time or whoever's time when we're packaging product. And if I can find some kid to work under the table for $5 an hour to do my packaging, I'm going to still bill that as an internal cost at $10 an hour because that's my internal labor cost, which is dramatically low, by the way. So packaging, all of that stuff, and then, yeah, whatever's left after we do all that, we can split 50-50. And you'll probably hear him tell you how it's not really a fair deal for him. Well, then ask him how it's a fair deal for you if you don't get to take all those considerations into account when all he's doing is giving you a 50 by 70 foot piece of dirt that you can acquire for far less money to access than that. See, here's how, yeah, you guys are working together in one aspect and now you want to do this together, but what you're really doing is you're, you're, you're making a concession for access to a square of dirt. And you should see what the cost of a square of dirt that size is in your general area. And again, like I said, I don't care about the fence. I don't care if you put this beautiful fence. Your vegetables don't give a shit about that fence. I, I, again, I'm back to, you know, 150 bucks worth of parts, and, and I could have a, a, a electric perimeter around there and a couple strips of uh, aluminum foil with some peanut butter on it, and I ain't got to deal with you. Well, I don't want ugly-looking stuff like that on my property. Well, I didn't ask you to put a $10,000 fence in, did I? Now, if you did, you got a little, I don't know, I don't think you did from what you said, right? So I, I just find it preposterous, and I find the, that anybody that would say they want 50% of a farmer's income after profit, or 50% of a farmer's profit, that wouldn't also understand then that the farmer's labor and every associated cost with packaging, handling, etc. is part of your cost, Because I'd say, well, I'm going to pay, I'm going to, I'm going to do a Schedule F, right? And you should, right? 
I'm going to do a Schedule F, an IRS Schedule F on my taxes this year, and I'm going to pay myself a wage, a, a farm wage, which is exempt from a lot of different things. But, yeah, I'm going to pay myself a farm wage of $10 an hour. Now, don't, don't worry. It's not going to cost you any money. I'm going to pay it out of my pocket. But it's going to come directly off. And, and what we'll use, here's the best part. Here's the best part. What we'll use to determine how much money you get is my Schedule F. And you might want to consider the fact that about 90% of Schedule Fs are filed with a loss. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you pay yourself a wage and then claim it on your Schedule F? You'd think no, because it's some kind of double. No, as long as you report the $10 an hour as income to yourself. So the entity is Joe Blow's farm. And the $10 an hour payment to Joe Blow comes out of Joe Blow's farm. So you're going to have to put money into the farm to pay yourself with. And you're actually going to have to pay yourself to actually do this. And it's probably more complicated than it needs to be. And something tells me after you have this conversation um, that that's not going to be necessary. <laughs> right? Because then we're going to come to something much more reasonable like 10 to 20% of profit. And that's going to be not taking your labor out, etc. That's going to be your, your hard costs. That's going to be any labor you do have to hire. That's going to be all plants, materials, packaging materials, any advertising you do, things like that. Stuff that you can put down, here's my ledger, here's what I spent, which will actually become your new Schedule F. Because there's no real reason to pay yourself a wage to knock down your farm income only to raise your individual income. It's, it's kind of foolish, right? It, it doesn't really. Maybe there, I mean, somebody that's a, a tax attorney that works with agriculture might be able to explain to me why that actually is a good idea. But I, I know it would probably be doable. And even if it's not, it's ex, it's explainable to this other person because I don't think he gets it. First of all, I don't think you're going to make as much money as either of you think you're going to make. But he's taking no risk. He put up a fence by choice. That's not a risk. He probably likes his fence. That's why it's there now. He's taking zero risk. He's not choosing you over someone else to farm that piece of dirt. He wouldn't be farming that piece of dirt himself if you weren't doing it. If he went to if he if he put out an ad on Craigslist and say, I want to lease my 50 by 70 piece of dirt to someone for agricultural use for a market garden, and he said, I want a thousand dollars a month, all he would hear is nothing. Nothing. I mean, seriously, that's it, it's just preposterous because what do you think you're going to make doing this and i think that's a big problem too like what are your like where are you going to sell this stuff what's your outlets most people that do this type of thing don't make money their first year if you are going to do this i highly suggest that you get curtis stone's book seriously i'll put a link in the show notes today to curtis stone's book i highly recommend that if you're not subscribed to curtis stone's youtube channel you get subscribed and start going through his videos and see how he does things And I guarantee you, if you ask Curtis Stone about giving a landowner half of his profit, he would tell you not even to have a conversation with them to just go somewhere else and get different access to land. There's a different situation going on here, and it, it, it's probably worth doing, but 50-50 profit where I'm doing the work as a farmer, fine. Then I'm, de then I'm deducting my labor as an expense. At $10 an hour, you ain't going to find anybody that will do anything approaching competent farm labor for less than $10 an hour. Because whether I put that in as sweat equity or whether I put that in by hiring someone to do it, it is effectively the same cost against operations because I don't work for free. That, that would be my short answer to it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Wendell from Tennessee. 
Uh, I've been hearing several podcasters talk about uh, the debt, the debt for the country, and uh, they're talking about how the the government would try to get rid of it, and they keep talking about inflating the debt away, and I uh, can't quite wrap my head around that. Uh, could you explain how they would do that and uh, how that would uh, affect everybody in America? Thanks. Appreciate everything you do. Okay, so first of all, my guess is these podcasts you're listening to aren't exactly fans of the government, the Federal Reserve, etc. And and they're not saying this is a good thing. They're kind of saying like they're trying to inflate the data, inflate the data, inflate the damn. Try this one more time. They're trying to inflate the debt away. Inflate the debt away. Inflate the debt away. So I did it three times now. I think I said dead last time. Okay, inflate the debt away. And uh, you're probably like, how in the hell can you inflate away the debt? Let's try something as a little mental experiment um, right now. Let's say that I loaned you um, at the beginning of the year one Bitcoin. And you spent it. It's gone now. It's gone now. And your income is in dollars. And when you spent it, uh, and it was worth a little under $1,000, you didn't buy another one. You converted it to cash. You bought something with it. It is gone. And now your income is in dollars. And it, technically, I loaned you $1,000. Okay. But in the world of dollars, if I loan you dollars, you pay me back dollars. You don't pay me back something else. You pay me back dollars. We denominate the payment in dollars. Well, let's say that we wrote a contract, and, and, and you were betting on the fact that Bitcoin was actually going to decline in value or remain stable in value, that what has happened, and it's trading at over $2,400 today, wasn't going to happen. So we wrote a contract, and you owe me back in Bitcoin, okay? which is a deflationary currency. It is designed to go up in value over time. Maybe not as much as it has this year so fast, but over time it can't help but go up unless the whole damn thing fails because it's designed as deflationary. Every time one more person wants to use it, it, it ends up being more valuable because it has to because there's only so much to go around. And there's a limited supply, and it can't be expanded into inflation. It is designed to be deflationary. All right? Okay, so you'd be kind of screwed now, wouldn't you? Your debt is, let's say I did it for no interest. I gave you a 0% interest loan, one Bitcoin January 1st, due back June 1st today. Now you need a Bitcoin. What's it going to cost you to pay back your zero interest debt? Well, the very second that I'm recording this, it's going to cost you $2,386. And I don't remember on January 1st what the price of Bitcoin was. I, I really don't. Um, it actually was probably less than $1,000. Um, but let me look it up real quick just so that, that, that I can give you the, you know, a, a total real world example here. Wow. I, I was close. It was $996. So $996 you, you borrowed a single Bitcoin from me. You now owe me one Bitcoin. Still one Bitcoin, but you owe me $2,386. So that's $1,390. $1,390 more than you borrowed in dollars. Why? It's not because the dollar inflated in this case. It, it, it's a little bit, but over that period of time, it wasn't that much. It was because Bitcoin went up in value or deflated. 
each one being worth more. Okay, so imagine the opposite scenario. What if the dollar was very stable and Bitcoin was deflationary or inflationary in nature? And let's say you had borrowed $996 and you owed me one Bitcoin today, but Bitcoin today was valued at $500. Well, now you would, you would be profiting by borrowing to the tune of $496. It's like a negative interest rate. Okay, so that is a little easier to understand because we're going from one currency form to another. Okay, so it's a little easier to get. So I start there. You get your head around this. So now let's look at it this way: If I borrowed a Bitcoin and it became harder to earn a Bitcoin, and I had to pay back in Bitcoin. Right, So Bitcoin had gone up in value yet again, but I'm still staying in Bitcoin with it. But my labor's being exchanged for Bitcoin at this new current rate. And all the other things in life have gone up in expense as well. Then it's very difficult for me to repay the loan. Right, But if, if Bitcoin goes down in value, then paying the back the loan is either because now I'm making more and more and more money in, in the, what you would call the relative currency value. So you, you have to keep in mind as well that the government prints money at will and borrows money into existence. All money in our system is loaned into existence. So what our government wants, what our Department of Treasury wants, what the Central Bank wants, what the Federal Reserve wants, uh, what all of these people want is a slow, moderate rate of inflation that makes the debt less expensive to pay back in the future with new borrowed money. Where in our society, as insane as this is, if our dollar gains too much value, in the not not across international lines, at the relative currency strength within our own borders, debt becomes more expensive to repay. Because that means that there's less money in circulation. You see how it works. It's inflation is when there's more and more money in circulation, It's moving, it, it, but see, that's, that's the problem is people think that's what inflation is. You print more money, you get inflation. Not really. Other things have to happen. Because they printed the shit out of money in 2008, 2009 and begged inflation to kick in and it wouldn't do it. Because they're shitting their pants about this very thing. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet, the United States debt balance sheet, all this stuff. Deflation is death for us in this crazy monetary system. Okay? But why didn't inflation just kick off when they just started pouring money in? Well, the banks sat on it. The banks were shitting their pants too, thinking we're going to go under. We need to be ready. We need to be ready for this day of reckoning. And we can make a little money on some incest, which is basically loaning the money you borrowed from the government back to the money for more than they loaned you the first money, and make you know a quarter point on your money at the tune of billions of dollars at a time, and keep your cash reserves heavy because now you're holding U.S. treasuries. So the banks weren't loaning the money. And businesses weren't building shit. And businesses weren't expanding. If they wanted to expand, they couldn't get the money. But most of them, even if you gave them the money, they didn't want to take it because they were busy paring down. So what do you need for inflation? You need more money, and you need the velocity of money to increase. It needs to move through the economy. And as it moves through the economy in our fractional reserve system, it multiplies. Because when the bank loans you money, they don't give you my money. If I have my money in, in, in Bank A, and you go to Bank A to borrow money, and I have $100,000, and you borrow $100,000 to buy a house, they don't give you my $100,000. They, 
they keep my $100,000, and they can lend out up to a million dollars against my $100,000. It's not they have a million and can loan out 900000 The deposit itself is the reserve, and when they loan you money, it's new money. They just create it out of thin air, just like the government does. They make a journal entry, John Doe, deposit $100,000, and you get the check. And then you go buy your house with it, the guy that gets the money, you know, he pays off his debt, that goes into a bank, whatever he has left over, he spends sooner or later it ends up in a bank and it multiplies again. That's inflation. And inflation benefits the borrower, and deflation benefits the saver and investor. If they're investing in a business that does things, not if they're investing in a debt instrument, like a certificate of deposit. Because they would actually go to negative interest rates at that point. So think of it this way. My father-in-law bought the house he was living in right up until he, he passed away, or until we had to put him in a home, actually, um, a long time ago. His house payment was a little under $300. Not a huge house, but a two-bedroom house, nice lot. I mean, it sold for a hundred thousand plus when we sold it, when we had to sell it. Um, but his house payment on it was under three hundred dollars. Why? He borrowed the money to buy the house, and the value of the dollar declined over time. The price of real estate appreciated over time to where he had what looked like a ridiculously low payment. But it wasn't a ridiculously low payment the day that he signed the contract for the mortgage and, and took the house over on day one. It was what everybody was paying for a house like that. And the longer he held the house, the longer he maintained the debt from the date of origination, the cheaper the payment on the debt got, rel got relative to the income expected in our society today. So that's what they mean by inflate the debt away. If they, if they continue to keep enough inflation going, even though the total amount of money we owe continues to go up, our ability to service the debt remains static or increases. But if you have deflation or too little inflation, the debt becomes insurmountable. And if you have that, at the same time you have rising interest rates, it's a complete catastrophe. And that's the danger that our government's in. And that's why... A, a deflationary currency, even though it was just created on a computer program through a blockchain like Bitcoin, is such a store of value. Because their plan is for their money to lose value, and they, they, are, they are much worse off if they don't get it done than if they do. They'll do everything they have to to force 2 to 4% inflation at the lying inflation rate, rate okay? Not the true core inflation, but the real inf the, the inflation rate that's published needs to be around two to four percent for them, or it's a disaster. That means it really needs to be about five to seven. So your money loses five. You you, you really have to make about five percent on your money to break even right now. That's why people like deflationary assets. That's why it's worked, and it, it's amazing to me that the establishment still hasn't figured that out. I don't think they have yet. I'm actually kind of worried what will happen when they do. Because they're going to have to figure out something to do about this. And I don't necessarily mean cryptocurrency. I mean their own world of currency. This is such an insane system of monetary creation and monetary management. And, and people have now figured it out to the point where a critical mass is being reached by people that, that understand every word I said here. That, that that system is coming to its end. All monetary systems that have ever been created on the history of planet Earth have come to an end. And they've always been replaced by new systems. 
I believe that decentralized economic systems like Bitcoin, like Ether, are the next generation of, of money. But what do we do with the one that's dying and how much damage does it do on the way down? And can it hurt crypto? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. That's why you got to diversify. I didn't get rid of all my silver and put it all into Bitcoin. Right now, I kind of wish did. But long term, I think that's a fool's play. All right. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Dylan here from Appleton, Wisconsin. I was looking through the homepage of the Survival Podcast and saw Harmony House. Uh, and so I clicked on the link. And uh, I liked what I saw. My question is, is purchasing the various products that Harmony House offers more economical than purchasing those items fresh? Um, the details, uh, I want to start building my food storage. Uh, we just uh, had a baby starting our family, and I want to make sure that we have um, enough food for uh, good times and bad. And if this is a more economical way to put nutrient-dense food into our storage, uh, I might consider it. Uh, thanks, and uh, have a good one. This is really kind of an it depends. Um, one, we talked about valuing your time earlier with the gentleman with the farm question. So how much do you value your time to sit around and dice carrots or slice carrots if you're using fresh? Um, and I'll talk about a couple different ways to approach this. And next is how are you dehydrating your product? Are you doing what I do when I dehydrate, and that is use an Excalibur? It doesn't run for free. It's pretty cheap, but it does use energy. And uh, there's a time of preparation and things like that. And are you creating a product as good as, as something like a professionally prepared product like Harmony House? And what are you paying for the fresh product? And, you know, what does it take to start with fresh carrots and end up with a quart? And you might want to do some experimenting and figure out your time. And you don't have to do huge amounts if you already have a dehydrator. You know, you can do things like one of the ways you can actually make this work is you wait for sales on frozen vegetables. Some vegetables, when you dehydrate them, you can just cut them and dehydrate them. Some have to be what's called blanched. The, 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 the formula figured that out is the same. If you dehydrate something that needs to be blanched, it needs to be blanched if it's frozen. And if it doesn't need to be blanched before it's dehydrated, it doesn't need to be blanched before it's frozen. It's constant. It's the same thing. So that means any frozen product will be dehydratable as is. You can literally dump it onto the tray in a frozen state, stick it in the dehydrator, turn it on, the dehydrator will, de it will thaw it and dehydrate it, and you can store it. So you might go out and get a couple bags of, let's say, dehydrated carrots. I'm not saying I did this, but I've pretty much done the math in my head. I, I think a professionally prepared product wins this race. And dehydrate it, measure the volume before and after, and determine, well, how much of this would I have to buy and how much would it cost to dehydrate the same amount of this one-gallon thing that I can buy from Harmony House for X dollars. Now, let's talk about a couple things. One, on full disclosure, the little banner that's on the Survival Podcast website that goes to Harmony House is not an official sponsor. It is the only thing other than the Coinbase banner that's there that if you click it and buy something uh, as a banner, I get paid. I'm an affiliate for them. Of course, my reviews of Amazon products as an affiliate, there's an Amazon commission. So um, that's full disclosure on, on that. But those are the only affiliate programs currently on the site. So... It is in my financial interest that you buy Harmony House from me. Um, 
not a ton of people do it, and I've actually thought about taking it down because it it doesn't really make me a lot of money. Um, in fact, I only hear from them like two or three times a year, and then they tell me what I've made all year. Right, so it's like, oh, we we're sending you a direct deposit for this much money. No shit, really. Okay, that's kind of how it works out. I even forget about the fact that's there. I don't promote it, but I just wanted to be full disclosure because my point is, I have found some other companies that don't have affiliate programs that I think maybe uh, might offer some better pricing. And Northwest Trading Company or Northwest Spice Trade, something like that is coming to mind, but I can't exactly remember what it is. And I'd say shop around. Don't just use that link. Shop around for anything. And, and find the best deal you can on the quality product. And I haven't ever bought a, a dehydrated vegetable product and been unhappy with it. And understand, dehydrate and freeze-dried are two different things. Freeze-dried, it literally is like fresh. Uh, dehydrated, you know, some things come out really good, some things not as good, and so, nothing really tastes like it was fresh. I, I don't care what anybody says. Let's talk about the stuff that, whether I get it from, because I always shop around myself. I go to Harmony House and say, well, can I do better than this? And sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. So I always buy the, the quality provider that I think can give me the best deal. And uh, what I actually buy. Well, one thing I buy is carrots. And uh, I've actually stopped buying carrots from Harmony House because I prefer carrot slices to dices. Because um, I can use the slices in a mirepoix uh, just as well as the dices. It really, they cook down just fine. So that it really, and then the, the slices are better in like a soup or a stew. And I usually throw them in right at the end so they don't overcook. And they're fantastic in like chicken soup. Why do I buy carrots? Well, because I really can't grow a lot of carrots here if you know how the place is. And even with wicking beds and stuff, I'll grow some carrots, but I would rather use those as fresh carrots because you pull that beautiful carrot out, you raise it in some sage and butter, and just, oh my God. You know, why would I dehydrate that beautiful carrot? What, like, where else can I get a carrot that was pulled out of the ground five minutes ago other than my backyard? So I just prefer to use my fresh stuff that way. And economically, I can't make the case for buying, let's say, frozen carrots and dehydrating them over buying a pre-existing thing. Celery, I, I mean, I, I don't know many people that grow large quantities of celery. It's kind of a, you know, you need sandy soil and you dig a trench and you use the earth to, to blanch it and all. And I just can't see growing fresh celery, slicing it up and dehydrating it. Onions, I, again, I want my onions fresh. Dehydrated onions are cheap. I do garlic. Those are probably my biggest ones. Onions, garlic, uh, carrots, celery. Uh, some other things that I, I, I get from uh, providers like this, jalapeno dices. I get those from Harmony House. Usually they're about the best deal out there, and once you get a big jug of them, you're good for a long time. Um, I used to dehydrate my own jalapenos, and if I ever have huge bumper crops like um, like I, I have in the past again, I will. But honestly, between some that I still have left over by for Harmony House and some that I still have in jars from when I once I did dehydrate myself in Arkansas, I haven't. You don't use a lot of dehydrated jalapenos at one time. It's kind of a spice thing. I use it in rubs and stuff like that. So I, I just don't know when I'll need those again. Um, green and red peppers are a really good one to uh, to buy because you can use them a lot. Um, but those are if you grow a lot of peppers, they're pretty easy to dehydrate. They don't need to be blanched. And they're probably one of the number one things that I could recommend that you self-dehydrate. If you have a huge garden and you're producing lots more vegetables than you can use and you have things that lend themselves to dehydrating, then by all means self-dehydrate. But I think you'll find like dehydrating garlic would be a pain in the ass. I don't see how you would ever break even doing your own garlic and onions. I, I really don't. I mean, they reduce by such a massive rate. I, I find them to be great deals. 
The reason that I'm big on the onions, the garlic, the celery, and the carrot is I use them in my cooking all the time. And so I'll buy, you know, a 10-pound bag or a gallon jug of that stuff, and I'll break it up into uh, quart jars, and I'll throw it in my dry canner. I'll throw it up, and actually, I'd usually, last time I started doing them in pints, because it's a more manageable size to bring down at a time. And, you know, whenever a jar's empty, we throw it in the dishwasher, it gets washed and put away, and I just go upstairs to the pantry and buy a new jar, and I take note of, like, how many are left, and I'm down to a few pints, um, I buy another big bag or big jug, and I use them in my cooking all the time. I would never take the time and effort to dehydrate those things myself unless they just magically appeared. And, and onions and garlic, I wouldn't even do it anyway. Um, carrots, if I had, you know, like the right property for it, I could grow buttloads of carrots. I'd get a, I'd get a, uh, what do you call it, food processor and I'd probably do those. So I think it all depends on what does your supply side look like? What does your use side look like? And what are you at? Let me talk about some things that I am not a huge fan of in a dehydrated, uh, mode. Uh, I am not a fan at all of green beans. I think they suck. I, I think they suck really, really bad. Um, I am not a huge fan of spinach flakes um, at all. I think those just, I mean, it just, they don't seem to actually amount to anything when you try to use them. You can throw them in a stew or whatever, and they're there, but they just don't seem to add up to anything. So those are the ones I'm not big on. Um, tomato dices are actually pretty damn good, and that's another one that, you know, I'd be hard-pressed to sit around dicing tomatoes and dehydrating them. Uh, so if I wanted dehydrated tomatoes, and we do use those quite a bit as well, that would be the other one. I would probably buy them because if I'm producing tons of tomatoes, I'm more likely to lend that into canning and things like that uh, than sitting around dicing them. And man, I'd get enough to make one bowl of pico de gallo or salsa, and I'd be done with it for the day. You know, uh, that's just kind of how I feel about it. So it's up to you, but I think it's a viable option, and I don't think it's an all or nothing. I think it's pick and choose the things that make sense to self-produce, and pick and choose the things that make sense to procure. And buy small amounts the first time and try them and see if they work into your life. I do not see these as products to buy solely for the purpose of sticking in your larder and leaving for the long term. This is product you should be using in your cooking on an ongoing basis. If it doesn't fit into that, don't buy it. So be careful of buying things. Like they have one that's like 16 different one gallon jugs of, of like, you know, 16 different things. Variety packs. Be leery of that. They also have little small variety packs. You might want to try those and say, okay, like, the, and like at the end of a month, what have you used? Like, you opened it, you sniffed it, and you didn't use any. Don't buy that no more, right? Find the things that actually, so you can eat what you store and store what you eat, if that makes sense. Let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, this one, we have a question on sealing a pond. Hey, Jack. Got a pond question for you. What's the best way to seal a small pond? I live in South Georgia. I've got a small pond or a small hole. It's about 25 by 10 by 6. I was guessing it's kind of kidney-shaped. It's about 100, 100 yards from a year-round river that looks Gucci, um, and it's got sandy soil. Uh, sometimes the pond will hold water maybe 6 to 12 inches if it is a down, um, if it's raining a lot. But for the most part, it, it, it leaks out. So I want to seal it somehow. I've looked into litter and bentonite and some thick plastic. I can't find bentonite in, in large quantities, and plastic seems to break down from everything I've read online um, after about four or five years. So I'm, what I'm considering is putting down plastic, and as it leaks, just kind of sealing it with bentonite um, as, as need be. So I just want to kind of get your opinion. Um, side note, uh, 
like I said, the Wiscoochies nearby, and I would not be opposed to put, I would love to put some kind of ram pump or something like that in there, but the Wiscoochie floods every year, and so I don't know how to, to set up a system to where it would deal with the flooding. So anyway, I appreciate your thoughts. Okay, let's let's talk about the main methods of sealing a pond here and uh, what options that you have. Probably, if you want it to look natural, your, your easiest option is bentonite clay. And uh, the question is, how much is that going to cost and, and where you can find it? And you're going to have to do things better than I did with mine. We spread it out, compacted it down, and let it fill up, and it held beautifully. And it's a, it's a really silty, mucky bottom. And... Uh, Because I was being bailed out by a contractor who had never done a pond with bentonite before, and I really didn't know how to use bentonite. I didn't know the mistake we were making, and the mistake we were making is we should have incorporated the bentonite into the dirt, so it was like 50-50 mix, and then as it's, so it'd be it'd be the same. You take your dirt out, or in your case, since it's already laying there sandy, you spread your your bentonite out, and you, what you want is an attachment for a bobcat that looks like a looks like a big uh, egg beater on its side. I don't remember what I don't remember what they call them, but they churn it all up. And then, and then roll it all out. So, um, unless you own a bobcat with that attachment, you're, you're probably in for, you know, $500 to $1,000 for the bobcat. Because uh, you said most economical. So I'm trying to work this out, you know, what is the cheapest way to do this and, and what is the, you know, what is the outcome of each of these ways. Uh, so at least $500 to $1,000 in equipment costs, especially if you don't know how to run one and you have to hire someone to do it. Plus, you have to find a bentonite, and you can calculate how much bentonite you need, but you probably need enough to cover the entire area at four inches deep, which isn't a huge amount for that size pond, but it's, it's, it's quite a bit, okay? So you, that's, that's your bentonite solution. So I'm going to say you're probably at two grand minimum by the time that's all over with. But I could be wrong, because I don't know what bentonite's going to cost you. So let's say it's going to be $1,400, all right? Um, the next one is a risk play. And that is to get a bunch of ducks and fence them in and put a garden hose right in the center of it and turn it on until it's, you know, halfway full and let the ducks shit in it and keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that and keep bringing the water further and further out as your ducks shit up the pond. And that may work. And plenty of people say it does work, but I haven't seen a lot of places where it did work yet. It's a small enough pond that it probably will work in time, but it'll take a very long time. And when you're done, you're going to have one very skanky, nasty pond that's going to take a while before it cleans up, and you're not going to be sure whether or not it actually you know, is going to maintain itself. Now, what would be somehow ideal is to have water coming in from that river and going back out to that river so you have water flowing through it. I, I'm thinking that's the only reason you mentioned it. However, it's probably a lot harder said than done. Because it's going to be, I mean, unless you can lay it out to where it's, it's downhill from some part of the river and, 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 and uphill from another so that you can gravity bring the water down and out, it's going to be difficult. But if you could do that, that, that would be fantastic. Kind of a little moonshine still dam with a pipe in it and water coming downhill. And in it, and, and then you could clean it out pretty quick. But you, you don't know whether it's going to hold or not. People say you can do this with pigs, too. Pigs, maybe. We'll see. But, again, if it's sandy soil, it, it takes a lot, you know, and, and, and it takes time. So I don't know what the timeline is like and what that's worth to you. But let's say that that option is ducks, it's feed, it's maybe you don't want ducks or pigs, and, 
It may or may not work. So I'm going to put that in the, like, that's, we could try that, but maybe we shouldn't here because there's other options. The bet night alone is probably better. Okay. So then our next op option is a, is a sealing it with what's called glee. What's glee? Glee is mucusy nastiness that goes from anaerobic plant material. Well, we're going to need to do this. We're going to need a fairly large, uh, amount of manure, like cow manure, compost to cow manure, something like that, which is not going to be free. Uh, unless you can get it for free. You can get free cow manure, then we're going to, we're going to need a piece of equipment again, though, because we're not going to want to do this by hand. So we're going to need a front end loader or a bobcat. A bobcat would be perfect for this. We're going to spread it out and we're going to have it at least two inches deep. Uh, for the whole thing is going to be covered in it. And then we're going to seed it with something that's going to grow like really fast and produce a huge amount of organic matter in a relatively short period of time when you sow it into cow manure and somehow irrigate it to keep it moist so that it sprouts and grows, which is probably the best thing for that is going to be buckwheat. And then when the buckwheat is up to the point where it's about, you know, it, it's, it's, it's flowering and it's, 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 it's good to go, you're going to need an equal amount of manure to the stuff you used the first time. And we're going to go in there and we're going to roll. So we need a roller, and we could probably get by using the bobcat and just driving back and forth. And we're going to drive back and forth, and we're going to we're going to mash all of the buckwheat flat. We're not going to cut it. We're going to just we just want to kind of fold it over. So we don't want to use the bucket on the bobcat and dig it up. The best thing would be a roller. And you could in a small area like this, if you can find a roller like they use for golf cart greens, you fill it up with water, it's got a barrel on its side, and you push it like that would be perfect. Or anything like that. Or there's probably an attachment for a bobcat that does this. We're going to roll it. After it's rolled, as soon as it's rolled, we're going to put another layer of manure on top of it. And we're going to roll it with the bobcat. Just drive back and forth and compact it. What's going to happen is those two layers of manure are going to form an airtight seal. It's not watertight, but it's airtight. And in this middle, like a sandwich, like a sandwich, right, is that thick layer of green matter. And if we can add to it, If you have a field with a whole bunch of green live growth in it, that you can go out and slash and drop in there and make it even more, that's even better. And when that green matter is trapped and it can't dry out, it's going to exudate and it's going to ooze out a gel. And that gel is going to form a barrier in there, and that is probably 90%. If you do it right, though you might not do it right your first time, you know, ever doing something like this, it will work. It is a very reliable way. It's a very old school way of, uh, of sealing ponds, uh, used a lot in Europe in old school, uh, fish and carp culture. These ponds that were done in places like Hungary, et cetera, that's how they were done. They had multiple ponds and they would actually drain them and then grow in them again, run cattle through them again, and then fill them the next year and move fry fish into that. And you'd use three ponds You'd have a, a grow-out pond, a baby fish pond, and a, a pond that you actually grazed each year. And those kept switching. Okay? So it, 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 that works. What's the most economical thing at this size? Uh, and, and like foolproof it will work is a pond liner. Now, you need to get actual measurements. Please get actual measurements and do your own calculations, but I'm using the guesstimate at numbers that you gave me. And for upon the side, if your measurements are right, leaving enough for a good two-foot uh, border all around it, you would need a 30-by-45-foot liner. Um, that's about 850 bucks. Ordered, shipped to your house, dropped off, 850 bucks, spread it out, 
cover the edges, figure out how you want it all done, and fill it up, and it will hold. That is uh, $850 for a 45-mil EDPM liner with a 25-year warranty. They'll ship it to your house by freight truck. There is only one downside. It weighs 450 pounds. You ain't picking it up. Uh, so you're you're really going to want like uh, a bobcat with forklift attachment on it or something like that. Uh, at minimum, some sort of, uh, you know, like a work party. You know, 10 guys, it can manhandle this, and you're going to need some guys to get this spread out and everything anyway, and they're kind of stiff. And it would really be a good idea to do pond underlayment, and I would recommend at this side, instead of buying true pond underlayment, I would go and find, you know, um, carpet companies, somebody like that, somebody that does carpet, and say, I need all your waste carpet for the next month or whatever. I need this, this is how much I need. Because they end up stuck with pieces that they can't really use as remnants or something like that to, to make, you know, to do anything with. And just a couple layers of carpet would, would give you, uh, a good underlayment. Sand would just be fine. I mean, sand is about like five dollars a freaking yard. And you already have sandy soil. But you just, you don't want to put that liner in there, put all that water on top and have some sharp implement. So you would look at it and determine whether you think you need underlayment or not. But it, whether it's scrap carpet or a, a layer of sand, I would do a layer of underlayment. So you, I'm looking at like a, if you rent a machine for one day, which is all you probably would need. And I don't even know if you'd need a machine, but you might need something like, again, like a forklift to get this thing out there unless you have another way to do it. Um, you know, you get out for about a thousand bucks and it will work. Of course, you have a pond liner, and it kind of looks like a pond liner. So you have to think about how steep the walls are. Can you can you edge it with stone or something to make it look a little more pleasing or whatever? But it'll work. So in the end, in examining all four of those methods, um, I, I'm down to I would either do bentonite or the liner, and I'd lean to the liner unless you have a local source of bentonite that you can get for a reasonable price and some kind of reasonable cost access to the machinery you're going to need to do it. And again, please, from personal experience, When you line it, that needs to be mixed into your subsoil so that it's a conglomerate and it's going to give you a much nicer, you know, sediment-free bottom instead of this cloudy stuff that I have for a pond. All right, so uh, that's that's me teaching a little bit with some of my own mistakes as well. Uh, hopefully, it helps you. And uh, let me know what you end up deciding to do. Uh, next, I have a, a, a call about our justice system being like used car sales. Jack, hey, this is Josh out of Texas. And I uh, just had a comment relating to the article that you read on show 10, uh, 2008 uh, about the uh, guy who stole a TV, broke into an apartment, stole a TV, was on uh, probation, and then um, turned himself in for another crime that he did not commit. Anyway, I know you were upset because uh, he got sentenced to 10 years as a first offense, and I wanted to kind of explain uh, it, how that works. It's... Um, I tell I tell my wife all the time that the justice system is kind of like selling a used car. Uh, you know, you always try to get the most you can. So what happens is the maximum punishment for burglary in Georgia, I'm assuming, I haven't looked it up, is 10 years. Okay, so that's the maximum sentence that can be um, given out to an offender. Well, because it's negotiation, Uh, you know, the prosecutor is going to come like this on his deals. All right, listen, buddy, this is your first offense, okay? This carries a maximum penalty of 10 years. We're not going to do that, okay? We're going we're gonna to give you 10 years, but we're going to allow you to do two years probation, okay? 
So, and then if you cre- if, if you pass that two years probation or, you know, whatever the time length of the probation is that he offers, then everything will be fine. However, if you don't, then you'll, you know, have to do your sentence. And that's why people sign for that, because they always go in with the expectation that they're going to pass probation, when, in fact, it's very difficult to pass probation, um, especially if you look into the, the urine test that they do now with the ECGs. That's a whole different subject. Uh, but it, it, but anyway, so that's, that's why he got 10 years. I don't believe it was racism motiv- motivated, uh, but that's just how they do it. They always, if you're going to get probation, they will always give you the maximum sentence allowed, but probate it. Anyway, Jack, thanks for your show. I just wanted to chime in on that. I appreciate everything you do, and I'll keep listening. So I, I totally agree with everything that this caller stated as, as fact. I, I disagree with the opinion at the end that you, you, you can rule out racism here. Am I 100% sure that the, the, the previous case that I reported on, and, and just the, the, the Cliff Notes version for those who maybe didn't hear the show, guy breaks into an apartment with two other people, steals a TV set, he's a first offender, he's given two years of probation. While he's on probation, he is accused of a crime. Uh, he, he, he didn't do the crime. He turns himself in and says, I didn't do the crime. They say, you did the crime, you're going to do the time, and here's your deal. And he said, screw you, I don't want a deal, I didn't do this. I didn't do this, and I, I am going to fight, I'm going to have my day in court. It goes to court, a jury votes, not guilty, he didn't do it. Even though he didn't do it, or at least the court of law said he didn't do it and judged him to be innocent, the judge on that case said he thinks there's enough evidence still to prove that he probably did do it, But I can't convict you of that, but what I can do is revoke your pro- parole or your probation and sentence you under your original charge to 10 years over a television set. So if this guy is right and he says, hey, the way this works is they, they roll out the maximum penalty and they tie that to probation uh, or parole or whatever it is, and you, you know, you think, you, and then you get in, I believe that's, I believe that's true. And it's very much like an ant lion. Right, like you, you can't. If you know what an ant line is, they call them doodle bugs. They live in really sandy soil, and they they make a little funnel trap, and an ant falls in there. And every time that the more the ant struggles to get out, the more the walls came in, and sooner or later they get swallowed by the ant lion. And if the ant is about to get out, the little ant line at the bottom spits dirt right at his feet and knocks him down and in, or her in really. Almost worker ant, all worker ants are females, just like bees. Um, so the poor little ant, she goes down to the bottom and she dies, and she can't ever get out of that hole. And that's a lot what the system of the state system of parole is like, and pro- probation is like, very much so. It's very hard to get out of that system ever fully and wholly. So I, I agree with that. Here's why I think race still plays a part in this. I, I, I honestly think that the judge made a determination that, hey, I don't think this guy's a good guy anyway, and I'm going to do this. And I, I think that it, I can't say, because I don't want to be the thought police, that I'm sure that was racially motivated, but it sure smells like racism. It smells like racism. It looks like racism. And the whole systemic component seems racist because I believe if it was me, I believe if it was me that, you know, and I had an independent attorney that I probably would have never got stuck with two years of probation on a 10-year suspended sentence in the first place. I would have never got that. Um, you know, maybe it's being the individual being a little bit wiser and saying, hey, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to get 10 years for this anyway, and I don't want this hanging over my head for 10 years, and you got to do better, or your attorney doing that or something like that. But in the end, this is what we know. 
That judge knew how long he was going to go to prison for when he revoked his parole. Or his, I'm sorry, his probation. He knew what he was doing to him. And he did it in spite of the fact that the man was found not freaking guilty. Now, this is where I'm going to say it's, it's, it's racism. And if it's not racism, it's the system protecting its own. We learned about in the history segment today that two years ago, a police officer shot a man running away from him that was no threat to him right in the back and murdered him was charged with murder, pled guilty to murder. And I'm betting you, I'm betting you, I'm betting you, I'm betting you. Even if he gets a sentence of like 15 to 25, I'm betting you that man is not going to spend 10 full years in prison under the charge of murder. I bet you he doesn't. And it'll probably be a sentence of something like 10 to 20. And he still won't do the 10. And it'll be long after, you know, the limelight's over and everything's wound down and some parole board will put him back on the streets six, seven years. Because he'll be a model prisoner. He'll spend most of his time in ad seg, I'm telling tell you that. They're going to take that into consideration and blah, 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 blah. The word justice is a very clear, easy to understand thing, if not clouded by mental midgets that we call social justice warriors that don't know anything about justice. It means that people are treated equally under the circumstances. And being sentenced to 10 years for stealing a TV is not equal treatment under the law because I guarantee you there are people right in that same state of Georgia that have done far worse things that were never even threatened with 10 years. It, it's, it, it's not even so much racism. It's, it's socioeconomic. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's socioeconomic targeting by the state. There's certain segments of society that you can put away for a long period of time. And it doesn't always have to be because they're black. They're poor. They're from a certain area, etc. And it's good for a prosecutor. It's good for, you know, a, a DA because it, it adds to their conviction record and being tough on crime so they can get reelected. And if you don't think they're selective in how they target people like that, you're just not paying attention. In the end, no matter what anybody says, no matter how true what this guy says, and again, I agree with the facts he's presented. This is how they negotiate that, okay? The fact that we have a man doing 10 years in prison for stealing a freaking TV set in America means we are not a free country. Oh, by the way, do you know what nation it is that you live in that you are most likely of all developed nations to end up in prison? Ours. Ours. We put more people in prison per capita than any other developed nation. Do you want it to get real scary? We put more prison people in prison in this country than in any other nation per capita. The nation you can be born in and most likely to do prison or jail time in is the USA. USA, number one. USA, number one. Quit believing the bullshit. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Roscoe calling from Eastern Washington State. Um, my question is, what are some good tips on catching a raccoon? Um, the son of a gun has killed uh, one goose and two chickens. Um, I'm usually pretty good at locking them up at night, but it seems about every other time I forget I'll have a missing bird. Um, some more details are I have about four acres. It's pretty similar to your layout, except they have a creek going through the middle. Um, and it seems that might be kind of the trail where he's coming up from. But that trail is also going through my neighbor's property. Um, I have one live trap, but it has yet to yield anything from it. Um, I've been baiting with tuna fish and cat food so far. 
and I, uh, my yard is fenced in like yours is what I was more talking about in same similar size. But, you know, raccoons like to climb things, and the electric part, he likes to go around it. So if you could, uh, help me out. I appreciate everything you do. Look forward to hearing from you. Bye. Uh, it's a great question, um, and it's a good one to bring my blood pressure back into equilibrium from this, you know, injustice of the state stuff. Um, so first of all, I didn't really, if I missed it, I'm sorry, but I didn't really hear you explain how you identified the culprit is a raccoon. Now I'm going to answer the question from the assumption that you're correct and it's a raccoon. It's not a fox. It's not your neighbor's dog. Because the most likely culprit in situations where a property is not fenced is stray or neighbor's dogs. That's your number one risk for your animals. And I would tell you the number one thing you can do, I know you said you have a house or whatever, is to put a contain a, a, a fence around the house and put up electro-fencing. That's, that's the number one thing to protect them and prevent it. Now, let's talk about getting rid of your raccoon. One thing I would recommend maybe is get yourself an inexpensive game camera. Uh, be diligent. Set alarms, whatever you have to do about putting your animals away. But set that game camera up around your coop and see if you can identify the culprit. Well, let's say you do that or you saw it or you found tracks or one, one way or another you've identified it is a raccoon. This is what's doing this to me, and I know it, and I want it gone, Jack. Sometimes raccoons will walk right into a box trap. A lot of times they won't. Um, they're really good at getting this stuff. And the thing about most box traps is if an animal, if a raccoon really wants the bait that's in a box trap, a lot of times they can, they can actually reach in through the, the mesh and get to it depending on the size of it. Um, and, but a lot of times they just, they just, they don't trust it. Especially if it's one that's ever been caught before. Like somebody, you know, a kid puts out a box trap to see what he can catch. He catches a raccoon, he lets it go. That happens in the country a lot. Because kids want to know what they can catch. That raccoon becomes educated. They're smart critters. Um, the trap that I would recommend, especially in your situation, is what's often called a dog-proof raccoon trap. And they're very, very effective. Um, I will tell you this, you're killing the raccoon that's in it though, because you ain't getting them out without killing them without getting really tore up and you don't want to do that by a raccoon. Um, the way they work is they look like kind of a metal tube and they have a spring in them that you depress and you put bait all the way in the bottom of them and they can't, they can't go inside it. I mean, this thing's about, you know, it's, it's probably about an inch and a half in diameter. It's about the size of a, maybe inch and a quarter PVC pipe about that size, but it's all made out of steel. And what happens is they'll reach in there. It's a very non-threatening looking thing to them, unless they've lost a toe in one by barely missing it or something. But that usually can't happen. These are pretty, you don't find them sprung with no animal in them is what I'm saying. So they reach way down in there with a little paw because they got a little hand, right? They can grab like a person. They reach down there to grab it and clamp. And it doesn't really hurt them. It's a spring that locks their arm in there. And it does it in such a way where it's kind of extended. And that means they can't do something like gnaw their arm off or something like that. And when you walk up on them, they're usually just sitting there kind of like gave up. And they don't do a lot of pulling or anything. They just kind of sit there and wait and see what's going to happen next. Well, what should happen next is a good 22 shot rate, rate between the eyes. Um, so have if you do this, have a method to kill quickly and humanely because a raccoon can do a lot of damage to you and will do a lot of damage to you if you try to pin its head down and release it or something. It's not happening with this kind of trap. 
the the bait that I recommend that you use, you know, cat food, uh, tuna fish, things like that are pretty good bait for raccoons. Uh, but the the bait that I've had the best luck with is called Hawbakers, H-A-W-B-A-K-E-R-S. And the traps that I recommend are made by a company called Duke, D-U-K-E. I have links to both of them in the show notes for you so you can check them out. And I would set at least two, if not four, of those traps for this raccoon. And, and here's what you have to accept about a raccoon. There's no such thing as a, a raccoon. There are raccoons. I promise you, if you have a raccoon, you have raccoons, plural. Uh, when we had a problem with them in Arkansas... I went on my, my, my year of scotch-infused raccoon murders. Uh, I shot them off my porch with a 410 shotgun with number four buck. And let me tell you, if you want something that makes a raccoon go good night and not wake up, that will freaking do it. They don't wiggle, they don't move, they don't twitch. They're done. Uh, like it much better than a 22 if we're not worrying about pelts. And, uh, man, I shot, I'm just going to say, I'm not going to say how many, I shot a lot of raccoons. It brings me to my other thing. Is this legal where you are? You know me, I believe in protecting your own property and your flock and everything, and it may, but it may or may not be legal for you to trap and or shoot coons that are a nuisance animal on your property, depending on your state and its regulations. In some places, they are a game animal slash fur burr, and you cannot take them outside of season, and you have to do them in certain ways and what have you. In other places, they're considered a varmint and can be shot on sight. And in some places, they are considered a fur bearer that you need a license for, except when they are causing, you need to know your local laws. So that if you do it in spite of your local laws, you know what you're doing and you can take appropriate action to cover your ass. I'm just saying. You, you mentioned this the creek that comes through the property that goes to your neighbors and all, and you might want to put your uh, game camera down there because you may actually be better off trapping this animal Because raccoons are going to travel creeks. That is a raccoon highway. Um, but you don't know if you're getting the nuisance one or the nuisance ones. You're just getting raccoons. Um, so that's how I would handle trapping the animal. The better solution, because if you kill this raccoon, a new raccoon will come. Okay? And I'm not opposed to this. I mean, when I had a coyote problem, I shot the shit out of that coyote. But we're talking about a sarcoptic mange having coyote that was running around in the middle of the day killing people's dogs. A rogue animal. Okay? Um, raccoons, the population is high. There's a lot of them around. You're better off using electricity, and you're better off using discipline to get those animals put away every night. It's just something. If you're going to be responsible for these animals, you really need to do, and that is your better answer. But uh, those are the, the, the trapping uh, methodologies I would use. Again, a dog-proof raccoon trap. That's going to protect things like cats and stuff, too. I've never seen a cat get in one, but if a cat got in one, if the cat was any kind of a reasonable animal, you could get the animal out without without having any long-term serious harm. Uh, and a dog is just not going to get in one of these. They're, that's what they're made for, so that you know farmers and ranchers that have raccoon problems can trap coons without having any harm come to their dogs. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one I have is on an opportunity if you would like to be a designer of a public food forest. Hi, Jack. This is the, is the other Andrew from West Michigan. There's a few of us out there. Um, my comment to you is I presented the idea of a food force to our city council, and they approved it. So now the problem is I don't have the knowledge necessary other than Google or YouTube to, to install a food force. So I was kind of hoping that someone in your audience that might be in West Michigan 
would like uh, the opportunity to use this space as their PVC design submission, but they're looking for a space that's going to be really turned into a food forest uh, to use as a design submission, I would welcome the help, and I know that there's a few other people in our city uh, that would, would love to have them here to check it out and give their input. Um, I started a Facebook page for it. It's called Hastings Food Forest and a Gmail account, uh, HastingsFoodForest at gmail.com. So if you know of anybody or want to put it out to your audience that if anybody's interested in using this space, they're welcome to it. I can uh, show them around, and we can work together. Anyway, I appreciate all you do. Thanks a ton, brother. Bye. Okay, I, I put that out there. I have a link to Hastings Food Forest uh, Facebook page in the show notes, and of course you can reach uh, this gentleman through the uh, Gmail account he set up, which is which he, he gave, and you can rewind and listen to it to get it right if if you need to do that. I'm going to make a suggestion to the gentleman making the call, though. I don't think I would want something that is a public food forest designed by a student as their PDC submission. I would want someone, if I was going to have a someone, with at least one implementation under their belt to do this. Now, I know you're in a situation where you need somebody to do it, and you probably don't have money to pay them to do it. So a professional designer, like, you know, up in your area in, your, in Illinois over there, you'd have uh, Bill Wilson. That's not that far. And that's probably out of the question. And, and I don't think that's necessary. Um, but you you got to understand a lot of people when they're doing their PDC they're very much in the 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 flowery mode I guess so to say they're in the the pie in the sky mode and they just they they go a little overboard with everything and that's okay and as a teacher when you're teaching students in a PDC you want that you want PDC is not just about concrete knowledge it's also about opening the mind to everything that's possible so in a project you ask them to do everything as though there's no monetary budgets there's no stakeholders to please in a perfect world this is what it would be that's not usually what government wants and you're dealing with government here sounds like reasonable local government but government and at some point money's going to have to come into play like how many trees and how many are they going to pay for and You're going to probably find in this walk that you're going to have, like you think, well, I got this one group of people. And they said, okay, and there's going to be like multiple stakeholders. Ask me how I know, Helena, Montana. Okay. Um, so I was part of the, 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 the first public food forest project in Montana, uh, in Helena. And it was complicated early on. And I wasn't part of it long term. I was just part of the original design concepts. And, uh, It's 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 complicated. So you need somebody that can be flexible. My suggestion would be, you, you, if you can, it'd be nice to get two or three people that have at least have done their PDC, submitted their design, gotten feedback from their instructor, and then kind of did a little bit of something. Maybe not a, a, a client implementation, but have actually done some stuff in their backyard and maybe a, a group of people to come together and do this. And I just bet we have enough people You know, because two or three is enough in that area that would like this opportunity and like to be part of it. And so I'm going to suggest that as, as any kind of response comes in, that you target that more. Now, if you get 20 different people that want to do it as their, you know, for various PDCs, they want to do as their design project, that's fine. You can have them submit them all to you, and you can look at them and kind of figure out what works and what doesn't. I still think it would help to have someone with some real-world experience to help sift through those and come up with a final design to present to these people. Because your work has only just begun. 
And, and, and I, I don't mean to discourage you. I'm just saying, like, all sorts of be like, well, how do we make sure that no one that's allergic to this eats that? Or when the stuff's ready, who gets it? And, and who maintains it? I mean, shoot. Now, I would suggest that you may want to reach out to Nick Burtner, not Nick Ferguson on ours, Nick Burtner here in, 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 in Texas. Um, he, a school of permaculture, he did a public small scale food forest like this, I think in Richardson or Plano. And even though it's, he, you know, he might really be able to help advise you. And I know he's a passionate teacher. Um, so I'll put a link to his website and you may want to reach out to him for some advice on this. Uh, with that, let's take another one. Jack, John from Blackhawk, Colorado. See, my family and I plan to move to Idaho um, about a year from now, early summer, maybe late spring of 18. And uh, we'd like to buy some property with some water on it. And I've never owned property with water on it. So uh, uh, the main question is, uh, what are some red flags or pitfalls to look for when you're looking at property that has a pond or a stream running through it? Um, what we plan to do with the property is, you know, I, I raise a ton of quail now. I like to raise some ducks and um, possibly some livestock, maybe you know, small livestock, sheep, goats, maybe uh, a pig, all for, you know, family use, not, not for sale or anything. So we wouldn't have a big herd. We just have a few animals. Um, so I don't know what would be best for that as well. Um, as far as ducks and streams, does that work? Seems that, uh, ducks poop a lot and, um, you know, if they're going in the stream, it washes away. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, if a gold metal trout stream was running through my property, that would seal the deal for me. But practically speaking, what, uh, what pitfalls or red flags would you look for? Thanks, Jack. Well, it, it, it's good that you look at this this way as going into a new property because when we look at property through the permaculture lens instead of the everyday lens, the average home buyer or land buyer's lens, we, we, we the first three things we look at, and I, I think we say them this way because Jeff Lawton does, they're really all equally important. Water, access, structure. So structure includes structures that are already on the property or where structures on the property can and will go. What are our build sites? Access. How will we access this property? And not just this piece of the property, but all of the parts of the property we think are useful. What is our access to them or what access can we put in and water? Where can we hold water, uh, infiltrate water, obtain water, etc. on this property? From a standpoint of what you're asking for, you're, you're asking about surface water. So that puts us into only one of two places. That puts us into the realm of the stream or the pond, unless you're talking lakeside living, which I don't think you are, especially in Idaho. So, and the other thing in Idaho is you may really struggle finding land with a pond. There's a big issue with water rights, et cetera, in the whole western states, et cetera. So, it's going to come down to what's available. I'll just give you my thoughts on kind of the ideal situation. I think creeks are – moving water is excellent. Um, it gives you the opportunity to do things like you – know, you mentioned trout, like dam up sections of your stream. 
And you can do that even where you have water rights problems because we're not really going to dam it up. We're just going to put a bunch of rocks here and make this hole deeper. And it's, oh, it's I, that's the way I found it. I didn't do nothing. That type of thing, right? And um, you have that clear moving water. You have clean water. Um, even if you're not a posta, right? Like my, my niece would say back when she was little, you're not a post to do it. Um, you, you could throw a pump in a creek where the hole is and move water somewhere else and stuff like that. I'm just saying, you know, people do it all the time, even though you're not a posta. Um, but the, the issue I, and I've not dealt with it yet. And, uh, Kevin up on, on the Elijah Springs farm in West Virginia that we work with, Perma Ethos. He has this, a creek, and I don't think it's been a problem for them yet. And I'm sure the ducks they have on that farm have found it. But to me, like, if ducks get in a creek and they start going down the creek, and will they come back? Have they been trained? So if you have a creek and you have domestic ducks, I would make sure that they're well-homed before they get to know that it's there. That's just a cautionary tale. As far as ducks pooping in a creek, um, I mean, if you're a duck hunter, then you know creeks are where ducks live. So I, I wouldn't really worry about that at all. I mean, if you have 10,000 ducks, but you're not even talking about doing what I'm doing, like small-scale egg production for a commercial concern. I can't see you having more than a dozen or two dozen ducks. So I, 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 with a creek, I wouldn't even worry about that. Um, but definitely you want to have water. If you have a pond, well, then you got to really think about the number of ducks And in an ideal situation would be multiple ponds. And the property can be uh, paddocked so that the ducks can only access one pond at a time. And uh, they have to be fairly sizable. Uh, you know, my pond is about 60 by 40, I guess. Uh, and I'll let my ducks in there. Initially, I said, oh, once a month, never. Never, 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 no more. They don't get to go in there. If I had four, I'd probably let them in there a couple days a month, right? But, um, man, the, the, the dozen I had that could fly that were born to the one mallard that nested here, man, they jacked that thing up till they had to go. I mean, they just had to go. They caused all kinds of... Because they were down there every day, even though there was a small number of them. They destroyed all the aquatic vegetation. So, I mean, you're talking something on the, na the, the area of like quarter acre before I'm going to let ducks use it. You know, and that's not a huge pond. And some real depth to it and things like that. And I'm not going to let them in there all the time either. Just not. Uh, now, if you have four to six and a quarter acre pond, I just let them go. Yeah, that's fine. Um, for other animals, what you're looking for with any kind of pond or creek access is a gentle slope that they can access it. And one of the problems you can run into with goats, sheep, pigs, everything, is a relatively gentle slope can be turned into a very eroded slope if you don't control their access and how they get there and where they get there. I'm actually a big believer with your, your ruminants and stuff. You're better off like fencing them out of the pond. Just fence them out of the pond um, and get a stock tank and use gravity to move water from the pond to the stock tank with a float valve or get yourself a small pump on solar because you're not pumping that much water and a float valve and whenever the float valve goes down the pump kicks in it fills up the stock tank. Uh, I, I think you'll just be you won't have you know goat shit and, and, and cow shit or pig shit in your pond and again you're not talking about large numbers. So you know 150 gallon stock tank is, is all you would need for your goats and what have you. I would keep them out of it um, just personally. If you can't, you can't. With a creek, it's probably going to be even more difficult. But then you really want to kind of create a funnel to where you want them to access the creek. 
uh, and, and, and maintain that funnel so they just don't have a need to go anywhere else. And goats got to be fenced, man. Goats, I, if you want to have goats, God bless you, but I just much bigger on something like sheep. A lot easier to control. And if you don't want to shear, you can look at something like Dorper sheep or other uh, hair sheep that, that shed every year that don't require shearing. Uh, just, just an aside there. But your, your water, you're looking for the ability to access. I've seen so many stock tanks that are just super steep. And like just to walk down to the edge of it, you're risking falling in. That's, that's not what you're looking for. You want well-placed features. And then... I would, again, caution you because of the area of the world you're in, you really want to be looking at property with pond sites in mind. You know, if the, if the soil conditions are right and you got clay in your soil, you know, a bobcat can put in a small pond in a day and you can rent a bobcat for a week for like 800 bucks. Okay? Uh, so, you know, you pop some swales in and interconnect them and, man, you got some going. But I, I think that might not be so easy to get away with in Idaho. I really don't know. And it might vary by county, by specific region, uh, certain individual things like is there some kind of federally mandated protected watershed that, that, that supersedes state legislation that makes it even more difficult. Like you've got to know all that stuff going in if you're thinking about putting any water features on the property. And that's, that's about as much I got on that one. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. And uh, we'll have the expert counsel show for you guys tomorrow. Got some really interesting stuff for tomorrow's show coming up for you. So make sure you tune in for that. And remember, if you like this show and the work that I do, please consider supporting us by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's tspaz.com. You'll find uh, a lot of stuff there, including a, a link where you can get onto the over to the Amazon uh, deals of the day and check out what those are. And then from there, do your shopping on Amazon like you always would. Uh, and you can find our reviews of items on Amazon, including today's review, which is an Encore item I brought back because I thought it was a real important one to have in, in your homestead and your farms. It is the Nelson Hose Repair Clamps. Doesn't sound like a big deal, and they're only about 6 bucks, but trust me, this is something you want to have. Um, I'm a big believer in buying the best hose you can get. It's something I talk about all the time. I think there's one place people cheap out on and regret it the most in homesteading is garden hoses. Um, and I recommend a hose called the Gilmore Pro Commercial Hose. I recently reviewed that for you guys. I uh, used to get them at Home Depot, and now Home Depot carries some one that looks just like it from Contractor Farm. It's shit. It's garbage. Um, and, and the Gilmore, if you get that hose, the, the, the fittings are pretty damn bulletproof, and the hose is pretty damn bulletproof until something like, I don't know, your, your wife runs over it with a tractor and cuts the end off it. Yeah, that's when you need one of these. If you have cheap hoses, I have cheap hoses because I bought a bunch of them that looked good until I found the Gilmore, and I'm not going to throw them away. You know, you get cracks and cuts and, and rips and stuff, and you can, you can fix a hose. And usually the end is where you get your problems. I've tried a bunch of different hose clamps. These are the ones I recommend. They're a brass fitting, and they're a heavy uh, lamp, uh, uh, painted steel clamp. And it's not like a little hose clamp, like a little band clamp that cuts you and the hose swells up around it. It's a great big honking metal clamp with two Phillips screws in it. Whoever the hell decided to put uh, flat head screws on ho a moving flexible hose clamp needs a good slap. I said that right in my interview. That's just dumb. You got a good, you know, Phillips hole there, a Phillips screw there that you can lock into with a number two screwdriver, which you should have lots of number two Phillips screwdrivers, I'm just saying. And you, you tighten that thing up and it holds beautifully. And it also, the, the female side actually, you can actually spin it. So you can actually put it on a hose bib. I'm, you know, I'm just saying. And, and stuff's going to go wrong. I recommend, you know, depending on how many hoses you have, 
Uh, I would say for every three hoses on your property, have at least one set of these because you don't know which side is going to get messed up. And the other thing they're good for, people say, well, what about a hose mender? It gets cut in half. Like, that's where somebody drove over it or something. Um, then I would say, the hell with a hose mender. Put, you know, whatever end has the female, put the male on. Whatever end has the male, put the male, screw it back together. And, and now, if you need to do anything where you need a shorter hose, you got two hoses. I, I just think that makes more sense than these mid-grade. Mid, they just suck. Other big thing with this, and this was dead on what I had to find when I found a hose repair uh, kit for the ends, it's a 5-8-inch hose end. Because I recommend you buy 5-8-inch high-flow hoses. Uh, they move a lot more water a lot faster. Uh, and it matters when you're doing farm work and chores and stuff like that. When you're filling things up, the faster you can do it, the quicker you get done, the more you get done. And if you have a 5-8-inch hose and you go down to a, a, a half-inch diameter fitting... You have a bottleneck, and you don't keep that high flow rate at the level you could. So I really recommend these. Again, they're, they're made by a company called Nelson, and I've tried a bunch of different kinds because I always do to find the best, and they are the best, and they're about six bucks a piece. Have some you know, somewhere where you know where they are because somebody sooner or later will run over your hose, and life is too short to live with a hole in your hose. It just is. Anyway, uh The last thing I have for you today is today's song of the day. And uh, I've played the original version of this song, I think, twice on this show uh, by Simon and Garfunkel. It's called The Sound of Silence. And a bunch of young people don't even know that that existed unless maybe you heard it on the show. Because in 2015, uh, a group called Disturbed came out with The Sound of Silence. I believe it was on their first, you know, mainstream album, so to speak. And, uh,. I think it's a fitting name of the band for this song, and I, I really like this remix of this song. If you listen to the original, um, if you listen to the original version of this song by Simon and Garfunkel, it's the exact same words, but the original doesn't really have a dark sound to it. It has a very kind of a happy sound to it, but this is actually a really dark sound. I mean, a really dark a, a sounds really dark song. Let's let's read it like poetry before we listen to it as a song and and, and and do a little bit of an evaluation of what this song's really talking about. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. So I was sleeping and this, this vision came into my mind and now I'm contemplating it in the darkness because it won't leave me. In restless dreams I walked alone, narrow streets of cobblestone, neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp. With my, when my eyes were stabbed by a flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence. So we're setting the stage here. Cold and dark and lonely and then blazoned with neon. Next. And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more. P 
People talking without speaking. People hearing without listening. People writing songs that voices never share. No one dare disturb the sound of silence. Man, you almost wonder, like, did these guys have some prophetic actual vision of a world where everybody's looking at their phone? Maybe, but not really. Because this is an age-old problem. You, you feel alone and cold and dark and dank, and there's, but there's people everywhere. But no one knows anybody. No one talks to anybody. Even in the 1950s and 60s. This is mostly the way things were. I know you see all the videos of hippies having, you know, happy, you know, uh, flower love or whatever, but this is society. This is modern society. People talking without speaking and people hearing without listening. But the, the real disturbing thing, people writing songs that voices never share. That's all of the wonderful things that people are capable of that they don't say because they're afraid of what somebody will think of it, or that they won't be able to get it done, or no one will listen. Fools, said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. So he spoke when no one would. He spoke with actual words and he was willing to listen and actually hear right but my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence tell me you don't feel that way when you try to explain liberty and freedom to people in America today or try to point out what's wrong or try to point out that everything might not always be okay and you should be prepared for things And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sound of of silence the sign that they made into their God told them hey hey the answers are out there the subway halls the subway walls the tenement halls they're metaphors for you have your own answer but no one disturbed the sound of silence no one listened nothing changed and that's why in this song The author's turning to the darkness to contemplate the vision and getting no answers. Disturbed indeed. Now listen to the song, and maybe if you've never heard the cover, you've never really examined the words, you'll hear it as though for the first time. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. If you feel that when you speak, your words are falling into the bottom of an empty well and not disturbing the sound of silence. You're speaking to the wrong people, or you're not speaking loud enough, or you haven't spoken long enough, or you haven't found the right words yet. It doesn't have to be this dark. Keep speaking, and the songs that you're writing, sing them 
in your lives through your actions. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Thousand people, maybe 